So last year on this day, I went into a classroom across the street where I was teaching a course at Asbury University in Theological Anthropology. And when I walked in, I was surprised to see only a handful of students. They told me that something was going on in the chapel. And I immediately said, let's join whatever's going on in the chapel. And so I walked in to Hughes Auditorium with keen interest. And I will also say, frankly, with some hesitation, not cynicism, and I wouldn't even say skepticism, but with some hesitation. I've seen enough to be wary of manipulation and weary of hype. And I didn't want the students there to experience that. So I went with interest, but also with some questions and hesitation. And within seconds, I was speechless. Now those who know me know it's a rare thing when I'm speechless. I mean, my job is to talk. My job is to talk about God. And I was speechless. The chaplain, Greg Hasselhoff, greeted me. And he, he embraced me with a hug when I came through the door. And he said something to me. And I asked me a question. And I couldn't even respond. And I remember thinking, there'll be time for words later. Now, over the next few days, I heard a song there again and again. And it never actually seemed like too much. And one of the phrases went like this. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. And I, much like all of you, I know this is a seminary community, you're immediately thinking about the passages in Scripture, um, which that song echoes. And if you're like me, you immediately thought of Romans eleven thirty six, But also, my mind immediately went to a, the echoes of an ancient Christian hymn, one of the very oldest. We just heard it read in our presence, but hear it again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he might come to have the first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. One of the most ancient hymns of the Christian faith one of the most debated passages in the New Testament and one of the richest. What is going on here? 
Remember that here in the book of Colossians, Paul warns the followers of Jesus about being taken captive by philosophy or empty deceits. It's just a chapter over. And scholars debate exactly what Paul is talking about here. Is it Stoicism or some early version of Gnosticism or, because we're in a seminary community, proto-Gnosticism? Or is it cynicism or is it some pagan religion mixed with Judaism? Is it all the above? Is it Paul just with a general warning about all that stuff? I don't have a firm opinion, but I don't think we need to have closure on all of those debates to see some things here with clarity. We do know that the social world of the first century was full of inequalities and injustices. We know that there was a great gulf between the ultra-rich and the people whose lives were ground down by poverty and powerlessness. We know there was hopelessness and despair and desperation. We know that there was an impending heavy sense of meaninglessness to it all. I mean, if things are really this awful and I can't do anything about it anyway, what's the point? As Wilson puts it, it seemed that the universe in all of its vastness and intricacy was beyond human comprehension or control. Human beings could do little more than struggle against the relentless tide of fate. And this means that personal and material insecurity, not to mention moral indeterminacy, characterize the human condition. And this human condition often amounts to little more than a fruitless search for meaning, ending with a death and oblivion. Not surprisingly, these people were reaching out for anything that held the promise of something different, something better. They were looking for ways to manipulate other people or manipulate these spiritual forces, some way to wrestle with or escape these mysterious forces that dominated their lives and honestly that just sucked the life and hope right out of them. And when Paul wrote these words, he was aware that people were desperate for meaning in their lives, weighed down by life, broken by it, trapped in their sins, unable to escape, aware of their insignificance, crushed by it. When Paul wrote these words, he was aware that people knew that their short and brutish lives would end in an unavoidable fate. I knew that in that kind of situation, people would gravitate to any theory, anything that offered them some way of coping. So just to summarize matters, people in that context were desperate for significance and for security. They wanted to matter. They wanted to count. They wanted to be loved and cherished and accepted. They were desperate for significance, desperate for security, starving for meaning, hungry for hope. And it's to these people that Paul gives this hymn, whether he recites it or, or composes it, I don't know. But it's to these people that he gives this hymn about Christ. And it's to these people that Paul speaks of Christ, the one who refers to as the firstborn of all creation, who is the very fullness of God. He tells us that Christ is the image 
the icon of God. Christ is the one who reveals God to us. To use a metaphor that probably wasn't familiar to him, when we think of icons, click on Christ and you are opened up to the very fullness of God. You want to know who God is? Look at Christ. Do you know what God's heart is really like? Look to Christ. For in him the very fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do you want to know what God's purposes for his creation really are? Or, indeed, if there is any meaning to this crazy and confusing mess we call life? Paul tells us. He tells us that Christ is preeminent over all creation. All things, top on top, are in him, have been created for him and through him. What he's telling us is there is nothing, nothing, nothing either in heaven or on earth that's too trivial for him. Nothing too broken for him to repair. Nothing too sullied or sinful to somehow be beyond him or his care. He's telling us that there is nothing, do you hear this? Nothing, either the visible and tangible things that we can see, nor these mysterious forces that seem to really run things. There is nothing that is beyond him, or beyond him, or above him, or outside of his authority. Neither thrones, nor dominions, nor rulers, nor powers. There is nothing too big, nothing too small, nothing too broken, Nothing too sinful for Christ. As the great Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not one square inch of this cosmos over which Christ does not cry out, Mine. Or, as a Wesleyan would probably put it, there's not one battered, broken sinner. There is not one desperate soul. For whom Christ does not cry out, mine, I gave myself for her. I gave myself for him. So in this context, Paul talks about Christ as the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one in whom dwells the very fullness of God. And he also talks about the one who is the firstborn, not only of creation, but the firstborn from the dead who reconciles all things. Christ is the one who is both fully human and also fully divine. The firstborn of all creation who creates all things, top on top, and in whom dwells the fullness of God. And he's the firstborn from the dead who reconciles all things, top on top. And how does he do this? Theologically, we see Christ work in the threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. Christ comes as prophet. And like the prophets of the Old Testament, he speaks truth to power. He faithfully warns of coming judgment and wrath. He comforts the afflicted and brokenhearted. He brings the promises of God's deliverance. As prophet, he not only warns his people, but he also suffers with his people. He weeps for them. He weeps with them. He suffers with them. He suffers for them. He suffers at their hand. Christ comes not only as prophet, but also as priest. And in doing so, he represents a holy God to sinful people and the sinful people to the God who is holy. As priest, 
He not only offers an atoning sacrifice, but indeed offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice that brings reconciliation. And Christ comes as king, as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He defeats sin, death, and the devil and establishes the kingdom of peace and justice. So Paul is talking to people who are broken by life, beat up and battered by sin, trapped and confused, fighting hopelessness, longing for security and significance. And he tells them about Christ, the one who is the firstborn of all creation, in whom God dwells fully. And as the firstborn from the dead, through whom God reconciles all things to himself. It is because of Christ, this Christ, the firstborn of all creation, who's the fullness of God, the firstborn from the dead who has defeated our last enemy. It's because of this that Paul can go on to talk about the hope promised by the good news. So I have two questions for us to consider. One is, how does this inform our understanding of what happened in these places last year? And the second one is, related to it, but a bit different, how does this inform how we live going forward? What precisely is happening in extraordinary events? What was going on here last year? Such extraordinary events that are genuine, I'm convinced that when they're genuine works of God, they're movements of the Holy Spirit. As such, the Holy Spirit is pointing people to Christ, bringing people to Christ, glorifying Christ and drawing people into union with Christ. The Spirit is not doing anything on his own. The Spirit is not launching some independent project, not doing anything that is not in complete accord with the Son. As you all know, the works of the triune God are always undivided. And when the Spirit moves, it's to draw people to the Son and bring them into a state of union with Christ. And what happens when people encounter Christ? Recall who it is that they are encountering. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son, the one who is in both fully divine and fully human, not a lesser ranked or lower deity, not kind of divine, not divinish. He is, to use the traditional theological language of one being or homoousios with the Father and the Spirit. He is God, but he's not some abstract deity sitting outside the world. He is God for us, God with us, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from among the dead. The one who is God dwelling with us, the one who defeats our last enemy. He is the Christ who comes to us as the fulfillment of, of the covenantal promises. He is prophet, priest, and king. And when the Holy Spirit moves, the Spirit brings people to him. When they come to him, they encounter him as prophet, as priest, as king. Whether or not they're thinking those terms explicitly is beside the point. That's who they're encountering. And when this happens, as happened in an extraordinary way last year, people come 
with a wide range of needs and hurts. We come to Christ hungering for security and significance. We are haunted by fears. We are crippled by anxieties. We are struggling with vices. We are enslaved to addictions. We are broken and hurting, even sometimes as we know we are hurting others. We are estranged from one another. We have this deep sense that things are hopelessly broken, but deep down we also know that we're unable to do anything about it. We are divided among ourselves. We are divided by race and class and sex and gender and economic disparity and pretty much anything else we can find to divide over. We are divided not only among ourselves, but we're divided within ourselves. We find ourselves wanting to do what's right, but seemingly unable to do it. Our communities are blanketed by suspicion and they're ripped apart by hatred. Hostility and cynicism seem to be the norm. Life that is dominated by that kind of strife is unsustainable. We know we have a problem and deep, deep down we know we are the problem. And then when the Spirit brings us to Christ, we bring our fear and anxieties, our suspicion and cynicism and hatred, our brokenness and our grief and our sorrow and our shame. Some people come curious. Some come cautious. Some just come running because they're desperate. But however we come, we encounter Christ. We meet the prophet who tells us what is true and good, the prophet who identifies our real problems, the prophet who warns of God's judgment, the prophet who announces God's deliverance. We meet the prophet who exposes and challenges our idolatries, who calls us to repent. We meet the prophet who offers guidance, who gives us instruction in righteousness, who calls us to commitment to justice and holiness. When the Holy Spirit brings people to genuine encounter with Christ, we encounter the great high priest. We're met by the one who has made the final sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. We encounter the one whose priesthood has no end, the one who always lives to make intercession. We are met by the priest who brings wholeness and healing. The one who promises to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we are met by Christ the King, the one who brings a promise of security, the promise of shalom, the peace that passes all understanding. As the conquering sovereign, he brings release from bondage, deliverance from oppression, liberation from sin. And as King, Christ is the one who calls for and demands nothing less than complete allegiance and swerving loyalty. That, all that happening in thousands of encounters is what we saw last year. People coming with all manner, with all kinds of problems. The Holy Spirit was active there bringing to people as Christ as prophet, as priest and king. Some confronted by their sins. Others comforted in their anxieties. All played out 
for 16 days thousands and thousands of times. That was a year ago. What does that mean for us now, today, here, on this one-day anniversary and tomorrow? I don't think this means that we should try to reproduce such extraordinary events. I, I'm very sure it doesn't mean for us to idolize particular places or moments. Recall that in the Old Testament, the roles of prophet and priest are both God-ordained, but they are very different. The priestly functions are divinely ordained and God-given. They are the regular, every day, every week, normal ways that God meets God's people. They are the regular rhythms of life, the normal God-established ways that we learn more and more to love God with all of our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. They're the rhythms of liturgies together. They're the activities of loving our neighbors. These normal activities are the established ways that God sustains and cleanses and purifies and empowers God's people. And we should not demean or reject them in pursuit of extraordinary things. But at the same time, the role of prophet includes unexpected, extraordinary, powerful events. And these are God's work too. These are unscheduled and uncontrolled and frankly uncontrollable things. And they are also works of God and we should not demean or reject them because we are just simply because they're less familiar or unsettling to us. Instead, brothers and sisters, we should thank God for them. Like people in the first century, and like the tens of thousands of people who flooded these campuses last year, we hunger for significance. We long for security. And brothers and sisters, Christ is more than enough. The one who is the firstborn of all creation and prominent over everything, the one in whom God is incarnate, is also the firstborn of the dead who has defeated our last enemy and brought reconciliation to us. He is the one who is making all things new. And not even sin and not even death stand a chance against him. For from him are all things and to him are all things. He deserves the glory. There are two snapshots I'll offer to share. I'll share in conclusion. My best friend uh, from middle school days, who was a college classmate, seminary classmate, 
Um, we ended up marrying best friends, um, faithful pastor for decades, um, was diagnosed with an advanced stage of cancer recently, and he's gone downhill quickly, and last weekend he asked me to, to do his funeral. The last time I was with him, when I took him to one of his treatments, I dropped him off at the entrance of the hospital because he can barely walk. And I went and parked the car, walked several blocks in. By the time I walked in, he was already sitting in front of one of the workers in the hospital from his heart, sharing faith, hope, and love. How does that happen? It's not because he's a great guy. I mean, he is, but it's not because of that. It's because the one who is the firstborn of all creation is also the firstborn from the dead. The one who brings the promise of hope for reconciliation of all things. How does this happen? Not because of him or not because of us or not because of who we are, but because of him. Because God was pleased. Did you hear it? God was thrilled. The fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily in the, the one preeminent over all of creation. Also the firstborn from among the dead who has now defeated our last enemy. Praise be to God. But it's not just hope for the future we talk about. Right? The good news, the gospel is not just about what happens after you're dead. It's also what happens now. And of all the, the hundreds of stories I've heard and, and the encounters I actually had here last year, I'll mention one. This was the second or third day in, and I found myself talking to a, a university student And he said, you know, he said, I was up at the, in the front at the altar, and they asked us to just to pray with the people closest to us. And he said, so I turned and I prayed with, my, with the three friends who were there. And when we finished, he, he said, we realized we were praying in four languages. English, Arabic, French, and Spanish. And then he looked at me and he said, Do you think that's a little bit about what it's going to be like? Amen to that. But it's not just then. It's God's work now. And God works in the prophetic moments, these, these extraordinary events. But God is also at work in the priestly rhythms of our lives. And accept God's work as prophet in Christ, as prophet, as priest, and as king and lord over your own. He is the firstborn over all creation. Nothing is above him or beyond him or somehow too much for him. He is the firstborn from among the dead and nothing can defeat him. 
And that, brothers and sisters, is the living hope of our good news. Brothers and sisters, we, in Christ, we have hope eternal, for he has defeated our last enemy, and not even death can stand up to him. In Christ, we have hope right now, for the one who spoke this world into existence can make depraved and broken sinners do again. And in Christ, we have hope enough. For from him are all things, and to him are all things. He deserves the glory. Thank you.